Some things are just unimaginable. For example, can you imagine, and maybe you can, maybe you have even heard of it happening, it's just beyond imagination to me, but can you imagine someone committing adultery on their wedding night? Imagine how outrageous that is, but in a sense, that's what one commentator said about the story we're going to look at from Exodus chapter 32 today. He said what happened in that story was as though the people committed adultery on their wedding night. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and we're going to get into all of that today here on Faith Is, where we stretch each other in God's direction, where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I think you will agree as we look into the story we're going to examine today that if the people in the story had absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, they wouldn't have gotten up to what they got up to. They wouldn't have had the problems they had that they created for themselves. They wouldn't have fallen into the trap and they wouldn't have betrayed their allegiance to God. You see, a big part of our understanding of Christian faith is we declare allegiance to God. Now, I know people want to say, but I believe in God. That's great. I hope you do. But my question for you is, do you have allegiance to God? Does God come first? And you remember when we talked about the Ten Commandments, we talked about how the very first one reminds us that God is supreme. God is it. And then, of course, we talked about the one that says, don't make any graven images or idols. Well, that's an expression of allegiance. To reject images and idols at God's command is an expression of allegiance. So we're going to talk about this idea of idols and allegiance and absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So hang on, where it's going to be quite an interesting ride today because we pick up the story after the people have left Egypt, they followed Moses out of Egypt across the Red Sea, and they've now made their way to Sinai. It's the same place where they got water from a rock, and now they're camped here at the base of this mountain, and God is going to come and visit them and begin in a very, very exacting and, and specific way, start teaching them how to get along with him. You see, that was important because they had agreed to enter into covenant, and we've seen them have the covenant renewal, and it's present throughout Exodus. Even in this section where we're looking at today, just before that, there's reminders of covenant renewal. See, God had entered into covenant with Abraham, and that covenant continued, and the people reminded themselves that they were going to be in covenant with the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they renewed the covenant. And we talked about how a covenant establishes a relationship, the relationship between the people and God was a covenant. It's described as a covenant, very significant and important description there. Well, part of the covenant relationship was there were guidelines, there were rules, there were laws that the two covenant partners committed themselves to. Now, God committed himself to a promise to Abraham to make him fruitful and to bless his family and, and that he would have more descendants than he could count. 
And so God made some pledges and some promises to Abraham. And the pledges and promises that God continues to make are all part of his covenant to the people. Leading them out of Egypt toward the promised land was fulfillment of the covenant. And then at some point, and we're at that point now, we see that God issues instructions to the people. He gives them covenant requirements, we might say. And, and there are covenant requirements. Every covenant would have them that the parties agree to, and they pledge themselves to faithfulness to the other, to allegiance to the other covenant partner. Now, repeatedly, even back in Exodus 19, and then after the giving of the Ten Commandments, what we call the beginning of the law, the people made repeated claims that, yes, they would do all that God said. Well, that's important. That's part of the renewing of the covenant, that their agreement to do what God says. That's, that's kind of a curious, curious thing for people today. Today, people think, well, all I need to do is pray a prayer and maybe go to church occasionally, and, and God will like me, and that's what I need to go to heaven. Well, the Bible doesn't talk so much about the relationship with God so you'll go to heaven. It does say that at the end of time or the day of the Lord, however you want to think about that final chapter in the history of the world, that God will create a new place for his people. But essentially what God is saying is not get your ticket to heaven. We describe it that way sometimes, and I understand that, and so do you, I hope. But what he's really saying is you need to make a covenant with me to follow what I say and to live your life the way I say to live it. I, I wish I could imagine how many people have thought they were going to follow God, but when they began to find out that following God, following Jesus, meant that they had to change their life. They had certain things that God expected them to do, and certain things that God expected them not to do. In other words, it wasn't simply about some kind of minimum qualification so I can make sure I avoid hell one day. Hell is a place to avoid. There's no question about that. But the point that Jesus makes, the point that God makes as far back as his time with Abraham, was that this is, this is an agreement, a covenant relationship. We're covenant partners, and we ab ab agree to abide by the conditions of that covenant. And so the people had said they would, repeatedly said, yes, everything God says we will do. But now we see that they didn't apparently mean it, or they got confused, or some people say, and I'm not sure that I disagree with this, they were afraid. And that's what caused them to behave in the way they did. Now, I bring that idea of being afraid up because, well, lots of people these days are afraid. They live in this kind of free-flowing anxiety of fear about what's going to happen next. And believe me, I'm aware of current events, and I sometimes wonder what's going to happen next because some outrageous things have been and are happening, things I never would have imagined. But I still remember and remind myself, and I appreciate it when my church reminds me, well, I appreciate it when we remind each other, because I am the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, and we do remind each other not to be afraid. Now, 
we were talking about that a little bit recently, and I guess I need to bring this up more often. I'm not sure I bring it up often enough, but sometimes I, I guess I think I think it, so everybody else must think it too. Um, that's probably not the case, but but fear has been a huge problem in the last couple of years in our country. People have been afraid, and because they've been afraid, they've been susceptible to all kinds of things, and so they've limited themselves. They've done things they didn't like to do. They were uncomfortable about things. They refused to stand up and say, no, not going not gonna to accept this because they were afraid. They were afraid of something they couldn't see. And maybe that's why they're afraid is because they can't see it, don't know how to deal with it. But especially the people of God need to remember God repeatedly says, don't be afraid. He says, don't be afraid of the people that can only harm your body, harm you physically. But he said, be afraid. Be in awe of the one that can destroy both soul and body. And we've got our our fear all kinds of misplaced. Well, it's a little deeper than that, I think. Uh, And this is what I think I suppose I need to remind each other, or we need to remind each other, I need to to bring this up a little more often, is that whenever we are emotionally driven, we are easily susceptible to manipulation. And in my lifetime, people have begun to believe their emotions as having ultimate truthfulness. So if they feel a certain way, that's an emotional response, if they feel a certain way, they have come to believe that's the truth. That's what really is. Well, that's not what historically people have thought. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach us to follow our emotions. Oh yeah, our emotions are involved in, and God's emotion of jealousy was involved in this story we're about to look at. So it's not that feelings can't exist, shouldn't exist, don't exist. The point is that our feelings shouldn't drive us the way so many people let them today. And so people become afraid, and so they do things that they would not have otherwise done because they're afraid of this, that, or the other thing. And maybe, maybe that's what caused this whole problem, is that the people were afraid. And we need to remind each other as we learn from their story, and that's why we have these stories for us to learn from, so we can grow through and to the place God wants us to be. We don't want to be afraid. Now, you're, some of you are really bothered by that. Well, how do I keep from being afraid? Well, I understand there's a fear response to things, but there's also a response. See, if, if you find yourself being afraid, you can stop and say to, to yourself, wait a minute, I'm not going to be afraid of this. See, our fear doesn't change anything. And we can conquer that fear. That's probably another sermon sometime. We don't want to get into all of that. But I do want to make sure we think about that. And I do want to remind us of that. Because it's entirely possible. And I don't know whether we can really prove that from the text of the story. But it's entirely possible and it seems plausible that the people were afraid. And that's what caused them to do what they should not have done. So we're looking at the story that we usually call the story of the golden calf. We're looking at it in light of the fact that God had renewed his covenant with his people. 
we're looking, we're reminding ourselves and looking at it through the lens that these laws God had given them, chiefly the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments represent in most of our thinking the entire law of God. There's a lot more to it than that, but the Ten Commandments endure for today. So we're looking at it through the, the lens of covenant and the, then the right regulations of the covenant. That's what law does. It regulates the covenant. And then we're also reminding ourselves that Jesus said all of that law stuff is summed up in two things. Love God with all you got and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's a good way to think about handling fear. If we love God, then we trust God and we don't have to be afraid of all of the things that people want to threaten us with or worry us about. Okay? I, uh, I don't know why I think of this. I guess because we're thinking about hurricanes and it's hurricane season. But I remember when we had Hurricane Ian come through. It was a bad storm. Real bad. Worst storm I'd ever been in. But I remember I, I wasn't afraid. And I thought that was a curious response. I wasn't sorry. But I guess... The only reason I wasn't afraid is because, well, for one, I didn't expect it to hit us, but it did. So I didn't get myself all worked up into a dither because I wasn't anxious for days at a time watching it come toward us. But I also remember just putting it aside and not being afraid. Wasn't a thing I could do except stay in my house during the storm. Wasn't a thing I could do to keep the electricity from going off. Wasn't a thing I could do to keep some shingles from blowing off my roof. Wasn't a thing I could do to keep a tree from blowing over. Why be afraid? So I decided I wouldn't be. So you see, that's a very small example. We don't need to be afraid. We need to to deepen and strengthen our confidence in God. Because God has promised never to leave us or forsake us. So we need to live out our lives in light of that. Well... All of that to say, let's get into this story of the golden calf. And I thought what we would do is we'd read, it's it's in Exodus chapter 32. I thought we would read a few verses and then kind of review them and then take the next verses and kind of unfold the story that way. I think most of us know, or maybe you've been seen something about the golden calf and that it was an idol and that the people worshipped it. But there's a little more to the story than just that. So from Exodus chapter 32, beginning with verse 1, from the New Revised Standard Version Updated Edition. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took these from them, formed them in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered bird offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. So the scene is set up because God has gone up on the mountain. Or God God has come down to the mountain. Moses has gone up on the mountain. And he he hasn't come down as quickly as they wanted. 
It's described simply as saying that Moses delayed to come down. The people saw that. They didn't know what happened to him. The implication is maybe he's dead. And what are we going to do now that we don't have Moses? Well, that's one of the reasons that people think maybe they were afraid, and that's what caused the problem. Because how would they know how to relate to God without Moses? Because for almost everything, God had spoken to Moses, and then he spoke to the people. So they, had, they didn't have a mediator to, to talk to God for them. And of course, they saw the, the uh, what should I say, uh, overwhelming, amazing, extraordinary, powerful, all of those things, evidence of God coming down to the mountain because there's fire and smoke and all kinds of loud stuff going on. They understand that something dramatic was happening and Moses went up there and they were afraid to do that. Rightfully so. God told them not to get too close or they would die. So here they are. They're afraid. How do we, how do we manage with God now? And if, if Moses is gone. So uh, they, they suggest this idea that um, Aaron should make gods for them. Well, yes, it's true. They might have been concerned because Yahweh was their sole contact. Yes, maybe Moses was dead. Yes, maybe they needed a mediator. And so commentators have suggested, and, and maybe rightfully so, maybe they're being overly kind. Uh, you could kind of decide that. But they kind of think that the calf that they formed, this idol, was meant to fill the role of Yahweh's representative because they didn't have Moses anymore. And to be sure, it's very interesting that that when they describe making this idol, this golden calf, they use the same word that God used when he talked about forming people out of the dust of the ground. But here, instead of God forming people, it's people who were made from the ground trying to form a god or gods and in that way represent God to them, be a mediator to them, if you will. Now, it's also interesting that Aaron proclaims a festival, a festival to the Lord. That's the way the text reads, a festival to the Lord in relation to this idol that they crafted. Well, you remember when Moses was talking to Pharaoh, he said, I want you to let my people go so they can worship me, have a festival, if you will, to the Lord. And and Pharaoh said no, and Pharaoh essentially said to Moses, well, who is this Lord you're talking about? Who is this God, Yahweh? I don't know him, and no, you can't go. So maybe in a sense, Aaron was thinking, well, we'll have this festival that Moses talked about, and that will help the people deal with their issues, whatever they were, maybe fear, maybe something else. And so maybe he was trying to preserve some level of true belief in the people. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess I don't want to be overly harsh on Aaron, but I don't want to ex- absolve him either because he, he certainly went along with the people in ways he shouldn't have. Because clearly we know that God had said, one of the Ten Commandments, no idols, don't make an idol. Well, what did the festival involve? Now, that's caused a lot of people to, to wonder about what's going on here because it's rather, rather, um, how should I say, benignly described in the text. It says the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. Hmm. Well, we don't know exactly what that means. Now, a lot of people have, have said it was more than just a festival of singing and dancing. It was It involved some kind of drunken, immoral orgies. 
And some English translations actually reference, or, or I should say reference that, but, but use that kind of language to translate the text there. But a closer look at that, and, and I'm in, indebted to a lot of experts in language that I'm not, but a closer look at that, uh, it doesn't seem to stand up to scrutiny that this was some wild orgy going on. The passage does not support that in any way, except that people take that one word. But that word is used in other ways, much more benignly in the, in the Old Testament. So that, that word by itself isn't really enough to say that it was some kind of wild, immoral orgy. But that doesn't absolve the prob- or solve the problem or absolve the people from what they did. They were having a festival and playing and celebrating and all of that stuff before an idol that God had said, don't make any idols. And so that's enough for us to, to, to realize that they were doing what they should not have been doing. Clearly, they should not have been. So now some other people uh, wonder about the, uh, the whole idea of, of idolatry. Maybe there was some hint of them worshiping more than one God. And because of the way the text is written, uh, they said in verse, uh, what is it, two? No, one. Come, make gods for us. And, the, and that's plural right there. Well, does that mean that they were worshiping more than one God? Well, we don't think so because the, the rest of the text really talks about one golden calf that came out, and then it's not a multiplicity of gods. Um, so maybe what they had when they said that was a false understanding of the one true God. And, and maybe that was why they used the expression gods. It does not seem to point to worshiping more than one god. It's not false gods, but more likely, as Victor Hamilton says, and I'm indebted to Victor Hamilton, an eminent Old Testament scholar, for much of what I'm sharing with you today. He's, he just has a brilliant insight into things. But he says that it's not likely that it was more than one god, but a false understanding of the one true god. Um, But it goes a little beyond the false understanding. They think that not only can they worship and obey him, but they can actually produce him. Remember, they made this God. So they want to be responsible for his his existence. And even even though the the product might be a stand-in for the one true God, they somehow wanted to have that. And it's as though they can make God in their image, in the way they want to. It's kind of like years ago I read the story. It was really kind of funny, of uh, someone coming down the stairs on Christmas morning and seeing all the presents there and opening their presents and discovering that someone had given them a -a make-a-God kit where they could make God any way they wanted to. Well, in a sense, that's what's going on here. They're making God the way they wanted him to be made. And so they made this image and Aaron made an altar and Victor Hamilton makes a very interesting interesting and insightful observation here. He says it's the only time that he knows of in the Bible where building an altar gets someone in hot water. And, and you think about that, and most of the time in the Bible when somebody builds an altar to honor God, it's a good thing. But here it's not. Now, the other thing that's interesting is that he built a separate altar, Aaron did. He didn't use the altar that had been used for the covenant sealing ceremonies that they had taken place. They didn't dare use that altar, but, but he got in trouble for building an altar. You can't just build any old altar for any old reason. And that was a bad thing for them to do. Now, 
Another thing that, that I think we mentioned a little bit when we talked about idols, when we looked at the Ten Commandments, is that, and, and this is something that, that we don't think about because we're not really aware of idols, but in those days, when they built or made or crafted or assembled or however manufactured, however you want to describe it, how they made an idol, they went through certain lengthy and complex rituals to make that idol holy and make it so it's appropriate or prepared rightly for the God to inhabit. And so maybe part of what's going on here is that they were thinking that that God could inhabit that idol. And maybe that's part of the of the the revelry that goes on. Uh, I, I don't I don't know that that's the case because the text doesn't say that, but we do know that's the way many ancient societies looked at the idols they made. Maybe they had something like that in mind. Well, we want to pick up the story now and go on because there's a lot more to it with verse 7 from chapter 32 of Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, go down at once. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so, so that my wrath may burn hot against them and may consume them. And of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. That is quite a final statement there, isn't it? The Lord changed his mind. Well, it's very interesting that that God reacts to what they did, and and rightfully so. We don't think for a minute that God was wrong in reacting this way. But notice that he says to Moses, leave me alone or let me be. Uh, so that I can take care of the people. In other words, he's saying to Moses, don't intercede for them. Just stay out of the way. I've got to take care of this. But Moses doesn't, doesn't step back. He steps up. You see, God is vowing very severe punishment for them. And he, he conditions it, seems to say, I won't do it if Moses just stands down and leaves me alone. But really, and this is another one of those insightful things that you get when you study into some of this stuff, really what that does is that opens the door for Moses to step in and intercede for the people. And isn't it interesting that God does that deliberately when he says that? He deliberately leaves the opportunity for Moses to step in and be a roadblock to his plans, his desires, to, um, 
do terrible things to the people. In fact, it's as though another, uh, another commentator, Dennis Kinlaw, is quoted as saying that uh, God is simply saying that if Moses doesn't step in, that he will, he will go after these covenant breakers. And, and, if, and all it would take for him to change his mind is for Moses to step in and intercede for them. And he, Moses does, and God does change his mind. You know, and Dennis Kinlaw on the same thing says to us, will we leave God alone? You know, God said to Moses, leave me alone. And, and I guess we should ask the question, will we leave God alone when we need to talk to him about important things? Is God willing to engage with us? Now, to be sure, Moses seemed to have special privileges in that regard. But remember, we've been talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And remember, Jacob wrestled with God all night. And his name was changed to Israel. And the reason he was given the name Israel is because he wrestled with God and prevailed. So God is giving us more than one hint that he wants us to wrestle with him. And he wants us to engage with him. And he's not upset by that. It doesn't seem to make him angry. In fact, in this case, he actually changed his mind. Philip Yancey, in a devotional book, he was also quoted in the material I studied, says this, Moses hears that remark, that remark to that God says, leave me alone. Moses hears that remark less as a command than as a sigh of a beleaguered parent who has reached the end of a tether, yet somehow wants to be pulled back. In other words, an opening stance for negotiation. Well, I never really thought about that as a negotiation, but God does not seem to be concerned that Moses would step up. And we have every sense that if Moses had left the Lord alone, he would have carried out his plans. And in fact, Psalm 106.23 says just that. You can look that up and discover that. Well, we're about to take a break, and I think we need one after all of this. This is pretty heavy stuff today, but God is helping us, and we're going to learn allegiance to him from the mistakes of his people. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I hope you'll stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray 
with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flu, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. AmericaOutloud.news is beaten to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Welcome back. You're listening to Faith Is, and I am Pastor Rich Stevens. I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, and we bring you this program in an effort to help you. We do it to help you to try to add some value to what you're doing to learn how to follow Jesus. We want to be part of the solution to all of that. And and so that's what we do this for, is to be for you. This is the whole idea is for this to be for you. So we hope this, this is helpful. If you find it helpful, share it with a friend. Tell somebody else about it. Maybe they can come here and they'll discover what it's like to have faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we've been talking about the people at, and their experience, the people of Israel as they left Egypt and camped there at Sinai and ended up making a golden calf to serve as a replacement for or something for God. They were concerned, maybe afraid. And the reaction then of God and of Moses is quite incredible. God wants to to uh, correct them in a big way, and Moses steps between them, uh, between God and the people, and entreats God not to do that. And he tries to, to calm God down and to somehow figure out a way to keep God from doing this. And and so different people and, and a couple of people that I discovered had different ideas about why would Moses do that. Well, for one thing, Moses seems to understand that Israel is Yahweh's people. They are the people of God. Secondly, Israel's deliverance had demanded great power on God's part to get them out of Egypt. God really exerted a lot to get them out of Egypt. Third, Moses says to God, the Egyptians would mock you if the people perish now. And then, of course, for God was reminded of what he had promised to the people that started this whole clan or tribe or nation, the promises he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, so essentially, there's three questions. Why save Israel from Egypt, then destroy the people? Well, Moses poses that question. And why give the Egyptians an opportunity to gloat? God had had really crushed the Egyptians. Why turn around and now kill these people and give the Egyptians 
It's kind of an ouch to say, well, look at that. What kind of God is that? He got them out there just to kill them. They'd have been better off with us. Or three, Moses kind of challenges God, how can you ignore the promise of an eternal covenant that you made with the ancestors? The ancestors of the people. Well, all good things. And now, now nowhere does Moses say that God was overreacting or, or anything, making more of this incident than he should. Moses doesn't say that. In fact, as Victor Hamilton reminds us, Moses appealed entirely to God and his character, his reputation, his past actions. Moses prays this way, not because of what he knows about the people. He knows what the people have been up to. He's, he, he's lived them, the, with them the life for a number of times. He's heard their complaints. He's seen some of their difficulties. But he talks to God this way. He prays because he knows about God. And so he appeals to God and his nature on this. He even, you may have picked this up as we read that, he even, Moses, turns down the, the opportunity to be Abraham number two. You know, God says, I'll, I'll start over with your household. And, and, and uh, Moses doesn't agree to that. He completely intercedes for the people and, and chooses to, to beg God to forgive them. His commitment is far beyond his own self-advancement. And you know, in all this conversation, and again, here we're grateful to Victor Hamilton for, for what he has said, that he says he's not aware of anybody in the First Testament, we call the Old Testament usually, he says, in the First Testament, maybe the Second, which we call the New Testament, maybe the Second too, who speaks as bluntly to God as does Moses on this occasion. Well, Moses was pretty blunt with God. And, you know, I don't know whether any of us would be quite that bold to be that blunt. Probably some of us have been pretty straight with God. Um, you know, we have short memories sometimes of the things we say to God. But I, I guess I'd be reluctant to, to put myself like Moses. You probably would too. But I continually get the idea that God doesn't mind if we tell him our deepest thoughts and our biggest concerns. Now, of course, he gives us guidance on what those should be, and we need to listen to that as we come to him. But I don't know that God objects to us pouring our hearts out to him about things. And certainly in this case, Moses wasn't begging for something for himself. He was begging on behalf of the people. And that's important for us. It's also very interesting to notice, and I'm, I'm, I know you have noticed this, that when Moses asked God to change his mind, God does. And again, Victor Hamilton says, I believe this is the only instance in Scripture of a prophetic intercessor asking God to forgive, only to read that God subsequently does forgive. It's just quite remarkable in verse 14. And, and we have to understand that when Moses asked God to relent, there's, there's a deep pain that God is experiencing here. Because these are people that he loved and and he entered into covenant with them. And God is asking, or uh, Moses is asking God to give up that pain. It's sometimes described as jealousy, and rightfully so. A proper kind of jealousy cuts deeply. And here, in spite of all of that, God is persuaded to forgive the people. In fact, they, they tell us the story and they act out in the story. Moses acts out his part in the story as though God is a living person. That's how they thought of him. And God changed his mind. Now, 
Hamilton goes on to say that, that God changes his mind for a couple of reasons. One, some person or persons have changed their behavior either for good or bad, or from good to bad. So he sees that in the scriptures, that God changes what he does, his mind, based on somebody else's change of behavior, or God changes his mind because somebody intercedes for another person. In this case, Moses intercedes for the people. Perhaps God has given you the gift of intercession and you intercede for people. And you wonder, is, is that really making a contribution to the kingdom of God? Well, I would encourage you, if, if you doubt, I would encourage you not to doubt. But if God has given you that special ability to intercede, then pray. And if he hasn't and you want to pray, go ahead and do that too. But there's evidence in the scriptures that some of us have special ability to intercede. I met a gentleman in the first church I served that he believed God had kept him from being a medical doctor years ago because God had a, a, a mission of intercession for him. And he had a separate room set up in his house. And he prayed, and he prayed, and he pray, prayed literally around the world. He believed that's what God had called him to do. So if God has put that on your heart, then pray like a house of fire, all right? Because God apparently, based on what Moses did, listens to what we say, and he takes what we say seriously, so when you talk to him, make sure you're careful what you talk about and how you say it, because God does apparently listen. And, and one guy, I thought this was a very interesting perspective, this one guy had about this, this conversation that Moses and God had, or we might call it an argument, but he said this, Moses was not so much arguing against God as participating in an argument within God. So it's as though Moses knows God well enough and they're able to have this conversation and it's not seen by God as an argument, but it's just simply a continuation of, of conversations that, that he liked to have or expected to have or that, that he and Moses were having. Well, let's continue. Verse 15, we want to read 15 through 20. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain carrying the two tablets of the covenant in his hands tablets that were written on both sides, written on the front and on the back. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved upon the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound made by victors, or the sound made by losers. It is the sound of singing that I hear. As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets from his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made, burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink. Well, all of a sudden, Moses shifts gears from interceding for the people to absolute indignation of what they are doing. And notice the the amazing description of those tablets. Should we go back and look at that again? The amazing description of those tablets that Moses carried. The, verse 15, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain, carrying the two tablets of the covenant, make sure you don't miss that word, in his hands, tablets that were written on both sides, written on the front and on the back. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved upon the tablets. Now, wow! quite a thing. Can you imagine if those had been preserved? What if we even had them today? Well, if we had them today, people would probably worship them as an idol, but that's a, that's a different subject. But imagine, he's got these tablets, and God himself has written. Can you imagine what it must look like to see God's handwriting? Uh, I hardly know. 
but they had the handwriting of God on them, both sides. And notice that God makes two tablets, and the Israelites, under Aaron's supervision, they make a golden calf. Now, you're probably familiar with that part of the story where Moses smashes those tablets and shatters them. Well, that's entirely fitting because the breaking of tablets was symbolic of the breaking of a covenant and the destruction of a covenant. Now, God was faithful to his covenant, but the people had obviously broken their, their part of the covenant, their responsibilities. And typically, symbolically even, you break tablets to demonstrate that an agreement's been broken. So it's more than just Moses reacting in indignation or outrage. It's really him visually showing us and them the covenant's been broken. And then the tablets are broken and the calf is about to be destroyed. Now, it says in here that Moses did several things in, in the text. It says he did several things. That he burned the idol. Now, some people might say, well, if it's an idol of gold, how did he burn it? Well, probably uh, it was an idol of gold, yes. It was probably wooden and then overlaid with gold. So it would have would have burned to a, to a certain degree. So Burning it would have been appropriate. Second, he grinds it up until it's crushed fine. It's the description of it. He burns it and he grinds it. And then he scatters the, the dust left on the water and compels the people to drink. And so they consume that. Now, you might look at that and say, well, what in the world? That's a pretty strange reaction. Why did he go to all that trouble to, to burn, grind, scatter, and then have them consume that to drink the water with that on there? Well, Best we can tell, and there's other precedent in ancient times for this sort of thing happening in other stories, but that was a way to indicate that that idol was totally destroyed. Completely destroyed. It could never be reconstituted again because it, it was completely gone. Powder into water, water consumed by the people. No way to recapture those raw materials, and put them back together. Now, sometimes we think of it, and I don't know that this is really the best way to think of this. Sometimes people think of this as a punishment, that he pushed, put that uh, powder in the water for them to drink. But I think clearly what, what the text wants us to understand, whether or not that made the water taste a different way or not, what the text wants us to understand is that this was final and irreversible destruction of that golden calf. It was gone forever. It's also, as Victor Hamilton points out, kind of ironic because the water that Moses throws the, the calf into must be the water that flows from the rock when they got to the Sinai area, or sometimes it's referred to as the Horeb area. It's all the same general place. That water was probably what came from the rock. And so now the rock, water God had given them now becomes the vehicle that God uses through Moses to represent the total destruction of that idol. Verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are wicked. They said to me, Make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Whoever has gold, take it off. So they gave it to me. And I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. 
to which we say, yeah, right. Well, that's a pretty lame explanation there. That calf didn't just emerge from the fire on its own. Uh, clearly, from the way the story is told earlier on, it was clearly made by them. Aaron had a hand in that. But he tries to deflect his responsibility. We do that too sometimes, I guess. We probably should take a look at that and own up to things quicker than we do. God is quick to have mercy, and we've seen that in this story. Well, now we get to a much more difficult part of the story in some ways, but nonetheless, nonetheless, an important part. Verse 25. When Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had lost control of them, prompting derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you. Go back and forth from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill your brother, your friend, and your neighbor. The sons of Levi did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 of the people fell on that day. Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of a son or a brother, and so have brought a blessing on yourselves this day. Well, what we see here was clearly judgment. The people that had been involved were now judged. The atmosphere has changed a lot, starting in Exodus chapter 32. Up to this point, the only sin that Israel had committed were really the the people that defied God's direction when he said, go gather manna on the seventh day, or or, I'm sorry, not to gather manna on the seventh, gather on the sixth day, enough for the seventh day. And some of them didn't listen to that and do what he said. And so they went out on the seventh day and didn't find any. And yet they didn't have a real specific punishment for that unless going hungry was, but they didn't really suffer because of the Sabbath manna. They just came up empty. And again, Victor Hamilton makes this point that up to this point, the only people that have paid a price for the sins were non-Israelites. Up to this part of the story, the only the Egyptians and the Amalekites had paid any penalty for sin. But now everything changes. And how many did it say? 3,000 people died. It's a huge slaughter. A remarkable event. Now some of these kind of things horrify some of us to read that and say, well, well, how could God have commanded so many people to be killed? I mean, that doesn't sound like like Jesus. That doesn't sound like the God of love. That doesn't sound like the God we would want to worship. And yes, it is horrifying. But you know what we've forgotten in our day? And, And I think it's very important. And I don't have to defend God. God can defend himself. But I think this perspective is what we we have lost and we need to recapture. God takes sin seriously. And we tend to think, well, God will understand. And we do whatever we want to do, however we want to do it. And then we say, or we show up to church and we say, well, well, God will understand. God will understand. God will forgive me. We don't take sin seriously. Now, sin was taken very seriously by God, obviously by this account. But if you doubt that we don't take sin seriously, think about how seriously God took sin in that he sent Jesus, his son, 
to become sin for us. That's serious. When God sent his son to become sin for us so that we could be forgiven, he takes sin seriously. And you and I make a colossal mistake when we don't take sin seriously. One commentator put it this way, the seriousness seriousness with which Israel takes the matter should occasion critical reflection by those of us who live in an age where virtually anything that goes by the name of religion is tolerated. God has specific things that he expects of his people, and he's not changing his mind. We need to take all that just as seriously as God does. And he took it seriously for him to send those people to go out and to kill all those brothers of theirs, potentially friends of theirs, because they did not demonstrate allegiance to God. We need to take that seriously. God will not be fooled by us. Yes, I agree. God is remarkably gracious and merciful. But here's the mistake too many people make today. We must not presume upon God's forgiveness. God is not duty-bound to forgive our sins anytime we want him to or just because we ask him. God nowhere in the scriptures calls himself to that kind of responsibility or says to us that's what he will do. It says, though, and this was a quote from a German writer back from 1856. And it was kind of along the idea of excuse making that so many times we see in our day. But he said, God will forgive me. That's his job. No, friends, that's not God's job. I had a bit of an experience years ago. I arrived at a church to be the pastor And I discovered after not too long there that there had been a horrible thing take place and it was ongoing. Two people, a man and a woman, had left their respective spouses and were now living together. They both attended responsible churches, churches that were committed to faithfulness to God. One of the churches was the church I pastored and another one was another church in town, well known, readily recognized as a church of faithful people. And the one spouse that was part of that church even held an office in that church. But they got tangled up together. And I never really knew a lot about what had gone on because I got there late in the story. And I only met one of those two sinning spouses. The story got back to me that what they had each said was, yes, we know what we're doing is wrong. But when it's all said and done, when our divorces are final and when we remarry, We will ask God to forgive us, and he will forgive us. And that is a heartbreaking statement because there is no guarantee. God takes sin seriously. But at the same time, God is a forgiving God, and we appreciate that, and he did forgive. But he didn't make everything right. He didn't solve all of their problems just by his forgiveness. See, that's a very serious thing because earlier on, the people had wanted assurance that God was with them and he had given them assurance, visible assurance. The cloud by day and the fire by night that led them out of Egypt. The parting of the Red Sea and they walked across on dry land. The provision of food 
the quail and the manna, and the water from the rock there at Horeb. They had seen all of this, and they had just recently seen the visible presence of God as he descended on that mountain when Moses went up to talk to him. They had every, every opportunity to develop confidence in God and to trust him. We have not seen those kinds of things in our day, but we have seen the gift of Savior. His name is Jesus. We've seen that God gave him to become sin for us, and then he came back to life to demonstrate that God was the author, the source of life, and that one day we would rise to meet him, and we would have life forevermore. But God here said, I won't go with you. My question for you is not, is God going to go with you, but is, will you go with God? See, that's the question they did not answer correctly. They failed that test. So my admonition to you is, go with God and come back here next week. I'm Pastor Rick.